Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. On this episode of Newt's World, the price of a gallon of gas, empty store shelves, longer shipping times for merchandise we order online, Americans across the country are starting to experience what inflation is like. The last time we went through a cycle like this was 40 years ago with Jimmy Carter. Then add in the supply chain issues. We've all seen the hundreds of container ships off the coast of Southern California waiting to come into port full of goods meant for empty store shelves. So what will inflation and supply chain issues mean for the upcoming holiday season? I'm really pleased to welcome my guest. Christine McDaniel is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Her research focuses on international trade, globalization, and intellectual property rights. She previously worked at Sidley Austin a global law firm where she was a senior economist. She's held several positions in the U.S. government, including Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Treasury Department and Senior Trade Economist in the White House Council of Economic Advisors and has worked in the economic offices of the U.S. Department of Commerce, U.S. Trade Representative, and U.S. International Trade Commission. Christine, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Fox News did a recent poll at the end of October, and 87% of Americans are extremely or very concerned about inflation and higher prices. Do you think they're right to be that concerned? Well, price rises do tend to have this sort of 
sticker shock or the psychological shock on consumers. And while they'd like to see their wages go up, they certainly don't like to see prices at the market go up. So it's very understandable that we're seeing the sticker shock and relative dips in consumer confidence. I look at the Long Beach situation and the Los Angeles port situation. Even in wartime, I don't remember this kind of chaotic buildup. What do you make of the whole supply chain problem? Well, there's a lot of different things contributing to this backlog. Basically, you have a pretty big misalignment between supply and demand right now. Now, there are some other government regulations and policies that are making things worse. Some, even well-intentioned, are questionably helping. And all these things are working together to worsen the backlog. So first of all, if you just look back, even before the COVID pandemic, we had some supply chain frictions starting to build up with tariffs, right? Taxes on U.S. imports, taxes on U.S. exports as other countries retaliated. But that was fairly mild compared to what we saw with COVID. But nevertheless, we did start to see some frictions there from the trade war buildup. And then you also started to see some manufacturers moving out of China, trying to find other locations to escape the trade war or maybe for their own other geopolitical reasons. Then when COVID hit, you had this big drop in demand. I mean, demand just went boom, right off a cliff, right? People stayed home. When people stayed home, they weren't working. And at first, they weren't buying as much. And then what happened is suppliers started reacting. So shipping companies, they started cutting capacity. They slowed things down. They even shut down some ports, factories shut down. Companies that would buy from other companies, they cut orders. Then shipping companies saw that looking ahead. They waylaid ships. They canceled routes. Then, meanwhile, what happened is all these people staying home. I know it happened to me. Maybe it happened to you. But we started ordering things again. But the things that people started ordering were more goods than services. So the relative demand for goods increased. And that happened across the board. And all that cunning capacity turned out to be a huge mistake because demand started ticking back up. But it's not as easy to crank up those supply chains again. And so we have this misalignment with supply and demand. And it's really piled up on itself in a pretty big way. All those shipping containers that usually come from China to the U.S., they were off all around the world delivering PPE equipment to places that aren't usually accustomed to getting those shipments. So you got a lot of shipping containers getting sent back to China empty. Meanwhile, the U.S. was in demand for goods, and so there were big delays waiting for these ships to get back to China, come back to the U.S. Now what we're seeing is this huge line at U.S. ports and ports around the world as shipping containers are waiting to get into the port and unload. So we have a pretty big misalignment right now, and that's really snowballed into a really extra long line at the ports. And this is just adding to higher prices for U.S. consumers and might even lead to some unhappy holiday shopping experiences. You mentioned the container problem. 
if I understand it correctly, before the pandemic, shipping a container from Shanghai to Los Angeles cost around $2,000. By early this year, that jumped up to $25,000. So that has to put some kind of inflationary or cost pressure into the system. And of course, you now have Walmart and Costco and Amazon and I think Target all organizing their own supply chains because they aren't comfortable that the traditional supply chain is going to get shaken out in time to deal with the holidays. In fact, the people in the shipping company that I talked to say they never thought prices would ever get this high. And as you said, I mean, these big retailers are even contracting for their own ships. Again, something we haven't seen, at least in my memory. Well, and some of them, like Walmart, have a huge trucking fleet. So if they can get it to the U.S., they can pick it up because they have enough drivers that work directly for Walmart that they're not caught up in this independent trucking problem. It reminds me of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged in that the system just kind of feels like in places it's breaking down. We're trying to remodel a house right now. The house is in Naples, Florida, and we wanted to get some paint. And Sherwin-Williams had to literally reach out across all of Florida to be able to assemble the paint because it didn't exist in the warehouses. And there are a whole series of these kind of things underway that either aren't available or they cost more or they're just going to take a lot longer. They'll take five months instead of a month sort of thing. But as you're describing how a supply chain compounds itself, I don't know why, and this is probably takes me back to when my children were young, but I couldn't help but think of a slinky. If you remember slinkies, they would come downstairs and one would start down and then it would pull the rest of itself, which would go to the next stair. And it's kind of like Different pieces of the supply chain get jammed up, and you think you're solving one, but then you're like General Motors announced that they had a dramatic drop in vehicle sales because they can't get any ships, and modern cars run so heavily on computing and need things like computer chips that that absence, the inability to buy chips, even if you're a company the size of GM, screwed up the whole system. In that sense, we're learning how truly interlocked the system had become, and how much it had depended on just-in-time delivery. Do you think we'll probably move back towards a little bit more redundant modeling and a little bit more willingness to either overstock in case of a shortage or accept longer supply times? That's a really good question. I mean, that's what a lot of economists are asking as well, and we're trying to talk to the supply chain logistics managers to see what they're thinking. They're doing all these cost-benefit analyses, and it varies across sectors and according to the size of your company. But it's interesting, you go back, remember when Japan had that earthquake, there's been a really nice paper that just came out that looked at how firms responded to that event. And what they found was that it wasn't this really big change in, oh, let's do business differently. But it was just, let's spread these costs out, get through this event, build a little bit more redundancy into the supply chain, but they didn't completely redo how they did things. We have to remember, I mean, firms locate in the places they locate. They make the decisions that they do because it's in their best interest. These are profit-maximizing entities. If it was more profitable to make things in a different country, they would. Some companies have moved out of China, some auto part supplier companies. 
in moving into Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand. But then with COVID and Vietnam just got off of a three-month lockdown, you know, those suppliers got killed by that decision. Well, did they know? So there's no easy answer here. Even with the tariffs, we haven't really seen companies move out of China to escape that 10, 25% tariff. So it's going to take a lot more than tariffs or even a global pandemic for companies to completely rethink their supply chain. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There are fascinating secondary effects. I grew up three miles from Hershey. I actually learned how to swim at Hershey Park, so I've always been very fond of the Hershey Company, which has been a great citizen. But their chief executive officer said recently, this is a quote, the supply chain challenges just wouldn't enable us to be able to meet further demand that we would create through our very impactful advertising. It just didn't make sense. So they're actually cutting back on their advertising because they have more customers than they can meet. Now, 
That is an interesting second-order impact of the supply chain problem. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's always a threshold, though, right? If they foresaw a sustained increase in consumer demand, you know, what would it take for them to invest and expand? Hershey is very efficient, and they can produce lots of candy. I think their problem is getting the cocoa and getting the sugar and getting the nuts. I mean, I think that that's why she's referring to the supply chain. It's not a manufacturing problem. It's that they literally can't get the goodies in to turn them into chocolates. Yeah, so their supply is sort of stuck at where it is. That's right. I had the similar experience when the government announced that this would be the most expensive Thanksgiving in history. I happened to have been at a meeting with Vice President Pence, and one of his friends who was there from Indiana is one of the largest turkey growers in America. I think he grows 14% of all the turkeys sold in America. And so I asked them to check back with him to see if there'd be a shortage. Well, the answer was much more complicated. He wrote back and he said, no, no, we're not going to have a shortage of turkeys. However, we're going to have a shortage of the right size turkeys. He said, most Americans want to buy a 10 to 12 pound turkey. The problem we have is because of labor shortages, we can't process enough turkeys when they weigh 10 to 12 pounds and they keep eating. So the turkeys are going to be bigger than people want. And we're going to have a shortage of 10 to 12 pound turkeys, a pretty good number of 13 to 16 pound turkeys, and far more over 16 pound turkeys than we will be able to sell. But that's actually being caused not by the turkey shortage. The turkeys are doing their part. That's being caused by the labor shortage to process the turkeys. Now, that's an example of what you study in the sense that it's a modern economy, and this is why bureaucracies can't manage it. It is so unbelievably complex that just when you think you understand something, you realize that there are three or four more things that are going on that you never even dreamed of. And I think that's why I've always been very much pro-market and anti-bureaucrat, because no bureaucrat could take the things you're looking at and understand them well enough to make the right kind of decisions. And that you need the churning and the constant evolution of the market in order to be able to do that. I mean, do you have that same sense that the world you study is like unbelievably complicated? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of a few weeks ago, I heard one of the Biden administration's appointees working on the supply chain describing his role as government as honest broker. But I just thought to myself, well, okay, maybe well-intentioned, but that doesn't really work like that, right? I mean, we already have an honest broker. It's called the market. And if you just let that play out, yes, there will be adjustment pains and adjustment costs, but it will be a lot less painful and a lot less costly for the market to do its work than the government coming in and trying to micromanage that process, however well-intentioned. I mean, the government here is really like a bull in a china shop. Just look at what's happened when they're trying to figure out which companies they should give exclusions to on the tariffs and which companies they should not. And that whole process is so messy. The, the Government Accountability Office released that report a few months ago and came down pretty hard on the agencies doing it. No fault of their own. They were told to do it. But it's an impossible position for government to be in to try to micromanage supply chains, to try to micromanage demand, micromanage supply. You know, you fix one thing and four other problems pop up 
and those problems lead to other problems and you get this cascading effect. And again, well-intentioned bureaucrats, well-intentioned policymakers, but we just know from experience again and again that the market is really best to sort these things out. If the government wants to do something, what they can do is to roll back some of these costly rules and regulations that keep prices from adjusting to supply and demand. I did a podcast a good while back with a guy who wrote a book on the 1921 Depression, which happened so quickly that it didn't really imprint on the popular mind. We came out of World War I. The economy went straight down for about seven or eight months, liquidated all of the excess prices, and began bouncing back up so fast. I mean, it's a very V-shaped kind of depression, and it didn't shape the 20s at all, whereas the Great Depression, which lasted for a decade and which was in part caused because the government kept trying to fix things and made it worse, became a really deep part of the American cultural experience. But it was fascinating talking to this guy about it. He said the key was that the Republicans who came in really did believe in the market, and they said, yes, this is going to be painful for a very short time, but then it's going to be over. And it turned out they were right. Now, by contrast, the distinguished and highly esteemed bicycle-riding Secretary of Transportation, Buttigieg, said recently, quote, for the near-term changes that need to happen in private companies, we'll be the honest brokers and partners, and we'll provide carrots and sticks where we can. Well, I'm always struck that big government socialists are so arrogant, they actually think they know enough to provide carrots and sticks. I'm quoting Buttigieg, of course. He doesn't know enough to provide carrots and sticks. I mean, he will simply screw up everything by intervening on topics he doesn't appreciate with complexities he can't possibly comprehend. And I think that it's a central problem of government that partly comes out of Ludendorff's war economy in World War I. And, you know, governments can be really powerful for about three years. I spent a lot of time studying different efforts like in World War II where we got a tremendous amount done. But if you don't start dismantling it within three years, it becomes its own worst enemy because you end up with corruption, you end up with favoritism, and you end up with decisions that simply don't work, which leads you to then make another set of decisions that are even worse. And presently, the whole thing is a mess of paperwork. And it seems to me that the best government really is the government which allows the entrepreneurs, the customers, and the market to work together to sort out problems and to find solutions. And I don't know what your studies indicate to you, but it strikes me you get much faster recovery and much lower cost if you allow the entrepreneur and the market to actually function. Yeah, that's exactly right. Immediate shock can be costly and maybe a little bit more that V-shaped is further down, but it's short-lived and the bounce back is much quicker to respond when you don't have that interference with the government trying to micromanage supply and demand and prices, trying to subsidize this group, provide import competition protection from this other group. Like you said, then you get these vested interests and then they knock, knock, knock. They're at your door the next day wanting to keep those extra protections, extra subsidies on, asking for more, and you just get this vicious cycle. Just look at what happened with the stimulus checks. Well-intentioned to be sure, but there is research coming out now showing that they probably went on longer than was optimal in terms of providing disincentives for people to re-enter the labor force. 
I've never been an elected official. It's probably hard to not try to be responsive to those concerns. But the market in the long run, from an economist's perspective, really is more efficient and it's less costly for everyone and less painful for everyone in the longer term to let supply and demand sorted out, prices will respond, and overall the cost will be less. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. If you don't mind, I want to ask you about something that involves economics at a sort of fundamental level where I may be totally wrong. And if you don't mind, I'm going to run it by you and you can correct me. I was told years ago that the origin of the Austrian School of Economics came when they went down to the fish market in Vienna. This is before you had refrigerators. And they monitored what people were doing. It's actually very similar to what Hernando de Soto did in Peru in the 1970s, in that they actually went out to the real world to watch what was actually happening and to record it and to try to figure out what it meant. And what they discovered was that people would come to the market and depending on what they were going to make that day, they would buy different fish at different times of the day, paying a different price. So if they're going to have people over they wanted to impress, 
they would show up early in the morning, they would get the freshest, best fish, and they'd pay for it. It'd be more expensive. If they were, let's say, towards the end of the month, they didn't have very much money, they would go towards the end of the day, and the price of fish would actually drop all day because they didn't have refrigeration. And so by the end of the day, they're buying fish that probably goes into a fish stew because you don't want to serve it. And so as they watched this, the people who were studying it said, you know, no bureaucracy could possibly have the data to know for you what you value at this moment and to recognize that that might be different than what you valued yesterday or what you'll value tomorrow. And it led them to an absolute belief in the market because the market put power in the hands of the consumer and you got to decide what it is you valued and how much you're willing to pay for it. Now, is that an accurate story? Yes, that's exactly it, right? I mean, that's a microcosm of why the invisible hand actually works, right? So you have the market, individual sellers, they know what they can get at the prices that they can get. They make their decisions to maximize their profits. And they also know what prices that they can sell their product for. So by letting people make their own decisions in terms of what's available to them and what they want to expend their own resources on. That's how the market works. That's how prosperity happens. I mean, it was even going back to Adam Smith. He argued that prosperity is the result of specialization. When we all specialize in something we're comparatively pretty good at. So this whole idea of trying to bring back a lot of activities back to the United States that we just don't do anymore. It just goes against these principles of specialization and letting the market work that have led to the great prosperity that we've had. Now, you mentioned Smith. One of the things I was always fascinated by, he writes at some point, that any time two or more businessmen get together, it's a conspiracy against the consumer. And it does seem to me that, that if you're a free market person, the one caveat is you may need the government to ensure that the market stays free. You know, because there's a perennial tendency to move towards oligarchy and towards big systems that crowd out everybody else and then make self-serving decisions. I'd be curious what your reaction to that is. Well, I mean, as long as firms can enter and exit a market, whenever there's profits to be had, those profits rarely go uncontested. So you might get some collusion. And you might see some bigger profits in a particular industry because of that. But if other firms can enter that industry, which they will want to do because they see those profits, then those two companies that we're talking now face new competition and will have to lower prices. So as long as there's no undue barriers or restrictions to entry, then those profits will rarely go uncontested. So it's your guess that in the long run that Google and Facebook and Twitter and even Amazon, which is gigantic, or Walmart, will all face upstarts who figure out new, better ways to do it and who are attracted by the opportunity to create new delivery systems, just as, for example... Walmart supplanted Sears Roebuck. Possibly. You know, as a consumer, I'd love to see more competition. Once Amazon's profits get so high, you know, as that markup gets high enough to attract more competition, then yes, we'll see it. I think we're still trying to figure out if the Amazon infrastructure is still so costly that it's sort of a natural monopoly. 
these are huge questions that a lot of people much smarter than me are working on. Let me ask you one last thing about the supply chain and where we're at. Are you at all concerned about Christmas gifts being available? <laughs> well, as an economist or as a mom? Well, let's start as a mom because that's where most people live. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have started thinking about that. The Lego catalog came last week and I told the boys, if you do want Santa to come, you better give him your list pretty early this year. That's right. The reindeer are taking longer. <laughs> Tell me for a second, how many children do you have and how old are they? Two boys, 6th grade and 12th grade. So, you know, Santa is a bit of abstraction now, but we still celebrate the traditions. The theory of getting the gifts lives on. Oh, yeah. That's great. That's really wonderful. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me. You're doing great work on the economics of inflation and supply chains. You're at a terrific institution, and I really appreciate your taking the time to both help educate me and hopefully help educate our listeners. So thank you very, very much for joining us in this conversation. And I hope that the Lego catalog and others give you and your family a terrific Christmas. Thank you so much. It was so nice to be here with you and your listeners. Thank you to my guest, Christine McDaniel. You can read more about inflation and supply chain issues on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Thank you. 
There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free at 